So uh, you have a flyer that has uh, more information about the ensemble and individual blurbs about each of the musicians, and I encourage you to take a copy if you did not on the way out. So thank you, and without further ado, music for a while.
Well, that was a piece by John Dowland. That was a piece by John Dowland, Flow My Tears, also known as Lacrimae. It was a great piece to open with so you can hear all the instruments and voice working together. Um, and, uh, but now it's time for Loot 101. <laughs> and we have about six minutes to get from the beginning to the end. So are there seat belts? <laughs> so this is a lute. This is another member of the lute family. Various names. Sorry, I'm not using the microphone, but you need to see them. So this is the Renaissance lute. This is the instrument you would have found pretty much in Italy, France, England, around 1590 to about 1610. It has eight sets of strings. It's tuned somewhat like a guitar, but a little higher. and. Uh, the more, uh, the more specific name for it would be a tenor lute because these instruments belong to families, groups, where you'd have a really small one, one a little smaller than this, this would be the sort of medium, and then a bass lute um, because uh, the different sizes allowed for different combinations of uh, performance. The other instrument here, oh. <laughs> uh, you might think that it's probably a bass lute, right? Well. Really, it's not. It's more meant to, uh, it's, it's meant for something very specific, and it was designed for something in mind. But it is a lower sounding lute, as you can imagine, with a long, low string. Uh, it's called the Theorbo, Tiorba, Kitarona. Some people call it Archiluto. Just to show you that it had lots of different names and lots of different uses throughout Europe. Um, let's start with the Theorbo. And um, what you notice about it, it has some long strings that you cannot play with your left hand. Uh, and they sound like this. A lot of tune, but it's okay. Um, and then you have fretted strings where you can play basically chords. And the idea behind this instrument was to be able to basically accompany the voice. What it would allow to do is play a bass line or and chords. And uh, it gives a nice transparent sound. It's not very strong sometimes, but you can strum it. And what it allows you to do is uh, play with dynamics. Um, and if you know the harpsichord or the organ, which is other instruments that were used mainly to accompany the voice, they weren't at the time really able to do that so well. So this instrument was very important for that. Um, I should say about the types of instruments that it belongs to, it belongs to the continual family of instruments. Instruments that were solely designed to accompany the voice. And um, the uh, the opportunities to uh, perform with a singer with this instrument are amazing in this repertoire that we're presenting today and this evening at the concert. Um, because the Theorbo has, uh, like I said before, a transparency, uh, but also allows you to have lots of different textures. You can fill in the space, you can strum, you can play just single notes and it sounds full and complete. Um, 
And so that is the Fiorbo. And some interesting things about the size of it, a lot of people say it's so big, but this is a small one comparatively. If you get the chance to visit a museum and see the historical models that survive, generally they'd be about that tall, uh, if from bottom to top. Um, but this one fits in my car, so <laughs> that's what we did. Um, now let's move on to the Renaissance lute. You'll have a chance to hear me play this in a few minutes. And the Renaissance lute, its sound, as you've heard before, is, is much more high in, in pitch. Um, you notice that the strings are, uh, there's two strings for each group. If you can hear there that there's a high D and a low D together. And what that does uh, for the sound, it, it probably makes it a little louder just for overall volume's sake. But when I play this chord, you can maybe hear some highs and lows mixed all together. It makes it sound much more rich if it was just single strings. say a little bit about the repertoire for this because this instrument was, yes, it was used in ensembles a fair amount as well, but a lot of the music that uh, survives for it was written as solos, and I'm going to play one in a few minutes for you. Um, and the music started early in the Renaissance to be uh, versions of, of sometimes popular songs, but compositions by vocal composers. They would take the vocal music and just place it on the lute, and uh, you would play it just as, you know, uh, just as a way to enjoy the piece without having to hear a choir sing it. Uh, it was it was a way for people to learn about music throughout Europe, uh, right on the lute. And it was the most popular instrument of the Renaissance. And um, just for the sake of visuals, I didn't want to do a PowerPoint, but this book is. Uh, this is book, it's Instrumental Music Printed Before 1600, a bibliography by, by uh, Brown. And uh, I was going to put post-it notes on every page that had something about the lute. Now this is every printed book between those periods, before 1600, that, has, uh, that was printed. That doesn't mean little scraps of paper that people wrote lute music on or not. But what I wanted to show you was that where I inserted this piece of paper, there's only this many pages that don't involve the lute for printed music before 1600. So that alone is a snapshot of how much music right here was written for the lute. Um, I brought along, I know there's a lot of you, but I thought it was interesting that if you've never seen what music looked like back then, um, you weren't reading notes. You weren't saying, okay, you play a G now, you play a D now. It's very much as if you were learning popular guitar and you want to learn a pop song, it's in tablature if you know what that is. Well, that's how this music was printed too. So I encourage you to take a look and see it. Just, it gives you the strings and the numbers about where to put your fingers. So uh, it was an economical way to reproduce the music because it's a contrapuntal meaning that there's more than one thing going on at once. In fact, uh, in this music, there's sometimes seven independent lines of music moving at once. So it's very complicated to write. In this way, it just tells you where to put your fingers when. It's uh, very interesting. And just to give you a snapshot, you can look at the back of these books, and it, sh it shows you what kind of music they were printing in 1599. Here he's got uh, arrangements of motets by composers like Palestrina, uh, yeah, Orlando, Lasso, there's a lot of obscure ones, but composers that people would have known back then. 
Then he has a section on popular songs from France and Italy. So he just uh, pretty much did his own thing on those. And uh, madrigals for two lutes. And then dance music. And um, that's something interesting about this period is that dance music started to become very, very important to the lute. And you'll hear some of that tonight in the, the solo I play. So uh, I encourage you to take a look at these, um, maybe during the question answer session. But uh, one, the, one of the reasons I brought this was that um, I was able to actually hold in my hand a copy of this that still survives in New York City. And um, I encourage anyone that uh, you don't know sometimes what libraries have until you start snooping around. And it's amazing. One thing that I always remember is that every page was rather stiff, but it all had its own different transparency and thickness. So every page was kind of like, what's this one going to be? And it's just amazing to do that, to look into history and think, you know, who's looking under candlelight to play this? And so anyway, it's just interesting to see what's there. Uh, now on to the piece I'm going to play. It's a piece uh, written by uh, Capsberger, a gentleman we're going to play another piece of this evening. And um, what I like about it, what I think it demonstrates is that this period that we're presenting it, it really is about uh, uh, breaking of the past traditions, freeing the music in many, many ways. And how that's demonstrated in this piece is that basically the composer has a couple ideas that work, a couple tricks on the instrument that he likes to use whenever possible, especially when he's playing with other instrumentalists, when he's backing up a singer. Uh, things that work really well in the instrument. Earlier in the Renaissance, the instruments were just playing the music of voices um, without much change. But now we start to see idiomatic playing, just playing the lute the way it sounds best, using the strings, uh, using the, just using the techniques that come actually easy. So uh, this music was very much, uh, in, this music can't be directly traced to the keyboard works of Bach, but it is a toccata. It's a piece that's searching out basically its ending. And um, the keyboard uh, composers of the day were very much influenced by the lute players of the day. So uh, here's a Toccata by Capsberg.
Okay. Anyway, um, I'm going to try. <laughs> so this is a viola da gamba, and um, viola da gamba means vial of the leg because I hold it between my legs, as you saw. Um, and I'm going to just use the English term vial for the rest of the presentation. So if you hear vial or viola da gamba, it's the same thing. Um, and and um, in France, it was called basta viol or viol. So it's all a root word of the same thing. And I'm going to play a piece for you first. Um, it's called What If a Day? And it's um, by an anonymous composer. It was published in the mid 17th century. Um, it's based on a tune that was probably popular in the late 16th or early 17th century. Some of the differences. 
It has six gut strings, and it has frets that are also gut, and they're movable. And so it's really more like a bowed lute or guitar than a cello. It really has very little to do with a cello. Um, it's held like a cello. There's no end pen at the bottom, so I support it with my legs. And um, actually, cellos at the time also did not use end pens. Um, that came in the 19th century. The bow was held underhand, like this, totally opposite. All the um, weak and strong strokes are opposite of a violin, viola, or cello. Um, and this instrument is also a member of a family. Um, it, the three basic sizes are a treble, which is about the size of a violin, a tenor, which is a little bigger than a viola, and a bass. This is a bass. It's a very small bass. You, there's a lot of um, variation in the way builders made things back then, so you can have a big bass file or a little bass file, but this is a pretty small one. Um, so it's parallel to the violin, viola, and cello. The, there's one instrument that um, looks a lot like this instrument that we still have around. Does anyone know what that is? Something you've seen in orchestras? Okay, the only surviving member of this family that survived all the way through the 19th and 20th centuries is the modern double bass that you would see, string bass. Um, they're shaped very similarly. They're tuned in fourths. This is tuned um, like a lutebearer guitar, has fourths and a third in the middle. Um, so anyway, um, the instruments originated, these instruments originated in Spain around 1400 and they flourished until around the 1780s. They were pretty much dying out by Mozart's time. Um, and they were kind of replaced by the violin family instruments because they could project more and be louder in a concert hall. Um, the instrument, the vials were revived in the 1940s and um, builders started building them again and playing old repertoire on them. Um, and new repertoire, um, and they're played now by professionals and amateurs all over the world. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of fun surrounding these instruments. A lot of people get into playing later in life and take up the violin after they've retired and take lessons. But they're also professionals playing, playing music like I like I am. Um, there are three main there are three main functions of vials. Um, played in, they're played in consorts, groups of three to six or seven vials of varying sizes. So you could have a treble, tenor, bass, treble, treble, tenor, bass, anything like that. Um, Peter will talk more about consorts. As a solo instrument, like you just heard, um, and as a continuo instrument. Seth talked a little bit about basso continuo and supporting a singer. Um, this instrument was often combined with theorbo, harpsichords, organ, combined with one of those instruments to support solo singing. Um, anyway, um, that's just a very little introduction, but tomorrow at 11.15 a.m. in Esper Recital Hall, I will be doing a full introduction to Viola's Viola da Gambas and give you more history, let you listen to some music, and also actually let you try playing. So if regardless of your experience, if you're a string player or not, um, you can come try my instruments, you'll get to play this one. And there, um, I'll also have a treble viola as well.
So you have two choices. But that's tomorrow at 11.15 in Esper Recital Hall in the music building. So I hope you will come to that and learn even more. Um, and I'm going to turn this over to Peter, and he'll be discussing the violin, which is a little bit more familiar. The early uh, 17th century uh, was a very exciting time for the development of the violin family. Um, the instrument itself had only emerged as a four-string uh, instrument that, as we currently know it um, about 50 years early, uh, circa 1550. Um, in 1520, there was the first three-string violins that appeared. They were basically a combination of several fiddle-type predecessors. Um, different shapes and tuning systems, but uh, in 1520 we got the first three-string instrument that was tuned in fifths, was more or less the shape that we recognize. And then in uh, 1550 they added the fourth string, um, so that is when we had the four-string violin family emerge, and it did emerge as a family. So with the violin, the fourth string was the E string, the top string, which uh, really enabled it to uh, reach into the soprano register, and um, the uh, it's, and it could also carry more when it's playing higher up. Um, the violas and cellos, uh, you saw me playing viola earlier on the downland that we performed, um, they added the lower string. So, um, and they do come in all different sizes. This is, of course, this violin is the smallest, and then you saw me playing viola and cello, you have seen it before. Um, They did come in, uh, they, they did emerge as a family. There's various bits about whether or not the violin came first with the viola, but more or less they all emerged as a family. They were used um, to double voices, and they sort of matching the violin. Uh, the, the violin family is matching the vocal family, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Um, the, uh, let's see, where are we? Uh, one of the main functions, as Seth alluded to, was a dance music, and this is one of the main functions for all our instruments, particularly uh, the violin family, and it, and it used also for viols. Um, so one of the main areas that this was explored was the use of dance bands, and I'll come back a little bit to later. Uh, the violin was developed in Italy. It was basically in the area around Milan, uh, two famous cities, Cremona and Brescia, the two that most here mentioned when you're hearing the violins. Uh, mentioned, um, and it's not known who invented the first instrument. It, it, the evidence suggests that it could have been um, Andreas Amati, but it's not certain, so that's a matter of some debate. I would like to jump in and just explain a little bit of the differences with the Baroque violin versus uh, the modern instrument, um, versus the counterparts that you're more accustomed to seeing. Uh, the first main difference is the strings themselves. Uh, they're made out of sheet gut, just like the violin strings, um, and uh, which means uh, they have the, this. This is this is what they use at the time. It's uh, has a little bit less projection, as Rachel was indicating, than the modern uh, steel strings do. But the, they do have a warmer sound. They're a little more sensitive to temperature and moisture changes, which is why you'll see us tuning frequently. Um, but uh, it's it's really it is the sound of the period, is these strings. The next, um, let's down for a sec. The bow. This is the next most important. The shape definitely evolved in the bow over time. Um, this bow that I have for the violin is, uh, is an earlier bow. And uh, as you can see, they're shorter. They came even shorter than this, actually. Um, and they had an outward bend. Uh, so they're convex in shape, more like an archery bow, uh, versus the modern concave shape, which is, has the recurve that was developed 
uh, much later on in the 19th century. Um, so there's no screws on it. Uh, they actually had modern violence, and this one does. The cheese a little bit of a bit of screw, so I can tighten the bokeh on it to bring the plane tension. But they would have had a clip-in frog to bring the, uh, the bow hair to tension. Um, so the bow is one of the, the defining factors. It really changed the sound. It does not function like uh, a modern bow. You, you're using it mostly in the lower half versus you have uh, the modern bow versatility uh, that was not used, not accessible at this time, but it's really, when you're playing Baroque music, this bow will almost play itself. It's, it, you can, as soon as you try playing uh, a period bow with, one, with the music that it's written for, it's immediately apparent why it was used. The other bow that I have here is a viola bow. It's a little bit later. It's uh, more of a high baroque bow. So it's got a little more, uh, you can see the shape is more similar to a modern bow. Other differences in the instrument itself, no chin rest and no shoulder rest on the back. So I've got a little chamois here to hold it in, help me hold it in place. Um, this also results in you holding it a little bit further in front. front. There are other cosmetic differences. Shorter, um, uh, short fingerboard and neck on the instrument, different bridge. They do have an effect on the sound, uh, but the, these are the ones I've already mentioned are the most obvious ones you'll notice. Um, as Rachel mentioned, consorts uh, we were in existence for both the viol and the violin. This basically consort is an ensemble of um, of the instruments of the same family, and. Um, so you'd be, there were violin bands that were very common at the time. This was one of the main sources of repertoire. Dance bands were, um, were highly popularly used for courtly entertainment. Um, if mostly because for the requirements of dancing, the, the light, the sprightly tone of the violin really made it uh, very sought after for accompanying uh, dance music, both in the aristic court and also in in the public taverns, it was uh, there's, a, there's a large amount of repertoire that comes from the heritage of dance music, both from the court and from country dance tunes as well. And you know, you, you'll see that you, there's still many of those tunes are still being played today. Um, uh, Playford actually published in uh, later a little bit later in this in the, in the Dancing Master is the name of the book he published in 19 sorry 1651. Um, that's the first edition. It was its collection of melodies that were in common use well before that, so they wouldn't use it right at the turn of the century. And uh, this was the established tradition of English dancing melodies um, that were used on fiddle type instruments before the violin, and then enthusiastically, adopt, uh, enthusiastically adopted for the violin family. Um, we're going to actually be performing one this evening, but I um, don't have time for that right now. Uh, let's see here. I'd like to jump ahead a little bit to, um, to Italy. The early 17th century Italian sonata, um, one of the most important developments for the violin during the early 17th century was the development of the solo sonata. Um, this was developed in Italy where, as we you know, was first developed, and they were really exploring the possibilities of the instrument. Um, the word sonata more or less um, means sounding as opposed to cantata, which is singing. Um, so this was a purely instrumental composition, um, a new style that's basically being created that's completely enigmatic to the instrument. Um, 
So yeah, the earliest sonata was instrument music, basically emancipated from words, text, or dance forms. Um, it became a vehicle for players to show off technique and their imagination, um, and really to explore the instrument. So the form of the sonata is basically a series of short, contrasting sections strung together. And uh, we're actually going to be, we're going to, I'm going to be joined with our now new understanding the continuous section of the fiorbo and the viola gamba. And we're going to, we will be playing uh, what is one of the very first sonatas for the solo violin. It's composed in 1610, um, and it's from the very first collection of sonatas. It's, uh, the composer is Giovanni Paolo Cima. He lived from 1570 to 1622. So we're not sure if this is the first sonata, but it is from the collection of the very first sonatas that were ever written. Um, and after we perform Trace, we'll continue with a little bit about the voice.
some of you may be noticing that the music you've been hearing this afternoon uh, sounds probably a bit different from what you're used to hearing or thinking about when you think of Baroque music. And it's an important distinction to make. Usually, well, the term Baroque encompasses a big period from about 1600 through about 1750. And if you think about our own music, our music has changed a lot in the past 150 years, in the past 10 years. So uh, this period is, is really big, and we're, of course, focusing on the, the first part, uh, which is quite different from the music of Handel and Telemann. Um, to really understand this first part of the Baroque, it's important to understand how it developed out of the ideals of the Renaissance. And it's interesting because the styles that we're, we're working with right now were consciously created by a group of indiv individuals who were really concerned with the ideals of the Renaissance, which was concerned with um, with the aesthetics of, of early ancient Greece. Um, so, especially in Florence, a group of people got together. They were gentlemen, intellectuals, and musicians, and they were called the Florentine Camerata. And they became very concerned with how uh, people in ancient Greece were able to convey words and emotions through their tragedies. Uh, and they started looking at these tragedies and they decided that the music of, that the, the tragedies of ancient Greece were entirely sung. They actually reconstructed how everything happened in ancient Greece and it's, we can say with, with certainty they were quite far off, but um, it led to some interesting developments so we, we forgive them. So, they took these ancient Greek tragedies and they decided that the way they were able to move the emotions was that they were sung and they weren't done in the way that music had been traditionally done in the Renaissance. In the Renaissance, popular music usually featured four or five or six or even more voices all singing at the same time. So you would have a soprano, an alto, a tenor, a bass, maybe another soprano, maybe another alto, and they would all be singing at the same time and often their, their words would be strung out over long stretches of music. So my favorite way to demonstrate this is to show you with, say, happy birthday. So instead of our traditional happy birthday to you, they may have something like happy. So you get the gist. You, uh, people would really have no idea what was physically being sung. And imagine me doing that with five other people doing that at different points. Things became fairly unintelligible. So the Florentines decided that to make music intelligible because it was important to understand the words, they were concerned with people um, understanding things from a personal experience, which is again different from what had been uh, thought of as previously important. They decided that music should be solo, should be sung by a solo voice, that it should be primarily based on text, so, uh, so you would sing happy birthday as opposed to happy birthday. Um, and that it shouldn't be uh, too broad a range, that it should be in a range that was, was kind of a spoken, spoken range. Um, so they called this new type of music monody. That's what we call it now, in fact. And this gave rise to, to opera. So again, opera was a form that was consciously created. And what these guys did is they said, well, let's do an entire tragedy or Greek play thing, or what we'll take our own subject, and sing the entire thing. And we'll sing it in this style, with a solo voice in a, in a limited range, singing syllables as opposed to long, ornamented melismas. Um, the gentleman who credits himself with inventing this form is, uh, is Caccini, and he's, 
he's truly special. Uh, I'm going to read you one of his quotes. He was very full of himself, um, but he, he was very important, so we can't disparage him too often. But what he said was, I can he was part of the camarada, and the camarada encouraged him to develop this form of music that he was developing along with others. What he said was, I can truly say that I gained more from their learned discussions, meaning the camarada, than from my more than 30 years of counterpoint. So musicians out there, take heart. If you're failing uh, broke counterpoint, all is not lost. Um, for these most knowledgeable gentlemen kept encouraging me and with the most lucid reasoning convinced me not to esteem that sort of music which, preventing any clear understanding of the words, shatters both their form and content, now lengthening, now shortening syllables to accommodate the counterpoint, a laceration of the poetry but rather to conform to that manner so lauded by Plato and other philosophers who declared that music is not but speech with rhythm and tone coming after, not vice versa. So this is why at this time you hear music that sounds very talky, but the point was that it was understandable and because it was understandable, it would hopefully move the listener. So the other uh, thing that developed from this solo way of singing was what Rachel and Seth have mentioned as basso continuo, which is um, kind of a difficult term, but what it essentially means, of course, is someone accompanying the singer. And the important part about it was it was a bass line with the inner voices often played on chords, uh, and this allowed solo singing to happen. It's, it kind of blows our minds, but solo singing was not what was done up until this time. It's what we do all the time now. It's what we think of singing. But before this, um, I really can't stress enough that it was many voices singing things at the same time. That's why this was such a watershed in history. Um, in fact, some people credit the early Baroque as the beginning of modern music as we know it for this and, and many other reasons. So those are the two, two truly important aspects of early Baroque music, that it's speech-based, text-based, and that it uses a basso continuo to support the solo singer. The third really important characteristic is ornamentation. Um, when we first started looking at Baroque music again, a lot of people thought it was very dull. It looked like a bunch of chords, some people singing in narrow ranges. They thought, what is the big deal? And it turns out that the big deal was that singers and instrumentalists improvised a lot of what they were doing. Um, so we look at our music more as a blueprint as opposed to something we have to adhere to. Once you get into the Romantic period, you follow those, all those markings on the page. Beethoven was very specific with his crescendos and decrescendos. But back in this time, it was left to the, the taste and ability of the singer or whoever was playing, um, which gives us, kind of it, it gives us more freedom. Um, it, and it, I think it makes it a lot of fun. So the type of ornaments I'd like you to listen for in this next piece we're going to do uh, are, are three. The first are dynamic, because again, dy dyna dynamics were something that were considered an ornament in this time. So one is called an esclamazione, and it begins with a sharp attack on, on a note, and then a decrescendo, and then a crescendo back. So it'd be like, ah, something like that. The third would be a mesa de voce, which is the opposite. It's starting quietly, getting louder, and then getting quiet again. Those are two very important ornaments. And the the second group of ornaments is more, uh, well, they're not so much dynamic or loud and soft based, they're more throat based, and they give this music a very definite sound. If you hear early Baroque music, you'll hear these things all the time. Uh, one is called a trilli, or trillo, a trillo, and it's not what we think of when we think of a trill. Today, when we hear the word trill, we think of da 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 da
But back in this time, a trullo meant uh, a rapid reiteration of the note. So it'd be like, ha, 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 ha. Anyway, they liked that. Uh, and they would often combine it with something which was called a groupie, which went, ha, 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 ha. So you hear them together a lot, and it was often used to imitate sobbing. Because in this time, uh, serious topics, Greek serious tragedy, was considered what you were supposed to sing about. So it was often very overwrought. Um, but very serious in its overwroughtness. Uh, <laughs> the piece that we're going to do is, is a lament from, uh, from Ariana, which is by Monteverdi, who is considered one of the most important Italian composers of this time, perhaps the most important Italian composer. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it before we start. It's from an opera, and it is the only remaining aria that we have from this opera. Uh, but it was very famous, it was widely imitated. We have many examples of this text um, and of this actually musical motifs in other, um, in other pieces. And it's about a woman who has, well, it's about Ariana and she's helped Theseus uh, kill the Minotaur and they've, they've left her family and he's taking her off to become queen of Athens. Uh, but while they're on a stopover point on an island in the middle of nowhere, he has a change of heart, and he's visited by a vision that tells him that if he takes her, it's not going to go well for her or for him. No one's going to accept this foreign queen, and she's kind of a witch, and it's just going to be bad. Athens will lie in ruins, and he needs to leave her behind. It'll be better for everyone. So he decides that despite the fact she's saved his life um, and everything else, he's going to leave her on the beach. So she wakes up, and she discovers that he's, he's leaving. and. Uh, Needless to say, she's not pleased. Um, but it's important for us to remember that in this time, you know, being left on a deserted island is not the pleasurable experience we might think of it now. There was no tiki bar where she could wander off and grab some snacks and a margarita. Uh, she was truly left alone, and her options were uh, starvation or um, being by animals. So, not so pleasant. Um, but anyway, so this is, this is this piece, and it was really, like I said, it was really well received. All the accounts talk about how people fell down and wept uh, at this music because they could understand it and because it was so moving, and probably the performer was um, also fairly adept. So I hope to do it justice. I'm, we're just going to do the first part of it. You can come to the concert this evening and hear the rest of it. Uh, so in this section, she's lamenting her fate and asking uh, Theseus to return to her. Um, and talking about how she'll be left to die. Keep me comforted in cosy do 
Questions. So if you have questions um, for any of us, we'd be happy to answer them. Yes? I am not a musician, so I don't even have a vocabulary. But why does the lute have a bent arm? Could you, um, could you repeat the question? Sure. The question is, why does the lute have a bent arm? If that's what you call it. To answer it quickly without having a, a quiz or a guessing session, um, if you know the guitar, you're probably familiar with that. The, uh, the headstock of the guitar has to be set back a little bit for physics, just so if it was straight, if it was straight, the strings would pull the neck off. So it needs to be set back in relief to take the pressure off on the neck of the strings. But one of the aspects about this instrument in particular was that um, it wasn't played in a room with fluorescent lights generally back in the day. It wasn't played outside generally. It was played in cold, dark, damp, dark places. And a lot of the music actually exists, the songs anyway, exists in four parts where the music would be put on a table and you'd be sat at the table and uh, your fellow musicians would be around you. And one of the ideas is that if Tracy was singing me in the candlelight, if it was straight or straighter, it would be a problem for her. <laughs> and it would uh, put too much distance between us and the candles and the music. Right? So there's probably other reasons. I mean, this instrument was inspired basically from the oud, Middle Eastern instrument, and uh, that instrument too has the, so it's probably a number of things, but that's one that they're quite sure. Yes? Are women singing the women's parts in those days? That is a very good question. Um, oh, the question is, were women singing women's parts in those days? It depended on where you went. Uh, as probably many of you heard, well, men did most of the singing in churches. Men did all the singing in churches. In fact, women were not allowed to sing in the church. So uh, 
In church settings, you would have had boys singing the soprano parts and also falsettists, uh, men singing in their, their falsetto range. Um, but increasingly in, in the Baroque time period, music became increasingly complicated and this was difficult for children at the age of nine to sing, even if they've been studying it since they were four. So uh, this in turn led to the, what we consider today a fairly barbaric practice of castration. Um, but it created some wonderful voices, uh, <laughs> which I am trying to measure up to today. <laughs> so, uh, this, but this was popular in Italy. Um, uh, male castrati were prevalent throughout the churches. Uh, and France did not like them. They thought they were awful and they used women for, their, for most of their singing. Uh, again, not in churches. Uh, England didn't use them until later in the 18th century during the time of Handel. In this repertoire, but but women increasingly became more fashionable uh, in the secular, not sacred, out, outside of church's repertoire. So in the operas, frequently you would have women singing the, the female parts, um, and you would have men singing the male parts, but it was considered uh, virile and sexy to have a man singing in the soprano range. So yes, you would have women singing the, the female parts in operas, um, and you would also have men singing in a high register. Um, the high voice was really loud. And we, the, the idea of this, this heroic tenor we now have in opera would, would have been a totally foreign concept to them. Does that answer your question? Well, what's going on with Fred Barato? I noticed some of the music, some don't, and uh, that the violinist often plays the open string. Uh, but, but one thing I noticed when, when I first started, this was early music back in 59 or 60, that um, almost always the counter sang without the Bagato, and now we see more of it. And then there are, there are a lot of women singers seem almost to be trying to imitate Alfred Geller for that earlier 1950s style of, of, of singing without Bagato. What, what's going on here in, in your movement right now? I guess the question, the question is about vibrato, uh, both for strings and for voice. I can address the same <laughs> um, Basically, vibrato at this time was viewed as an ornament. It was used to be used very sparingly. Um, so that's one of the first challenges that any modern player has approaching this repertoire is you basically have to go cold turkey and drop vibrato completely. And so when you are using it, you're using it specifically to warm up the sound. Later in the French repertoire, um, they actually would specify where and when to use it and what kind, particularly for the old number repertoire, actually. Um, yeah, for everyone's sake, could you demonstrate what we mean by the rattle? Sure. I'm sure there's people in this room who do not know that word. The brado. Just vibrating the finger back and forth. So, and uh, they, as was suggested, the use of open strings was very much the aesthetic that was approved of and uh, and desired at the time. So you probably noticed that when I'm playing, I'm using open strings a lot. You're trying to get the open sound of the instrument, the open ring. Um, whereas with modern playing, you're pretty much using vibrato continually. Basically, the biggest difference is that broad playing was bow-centric. You're looking, everything is done with the bow. Modern playing is much more done with the left hand. Um, also, regarding vibrato, um, I, I use a little bit of vibrato, but um, as my teachers have continually told me, 
um, throughout the years. It doesn't do anything on my instrument. That's not entirely true, but because I have frets, and a fret is designed to make every string on my instrument sound like an open string, because that was the aesthetic that people really enjoyed, um, the vibrato doesn't do as much on a viola de gamba on a fretted instrument as it would do on a non-fretted instrument like his. So that, that's some indication of the aesthetic might have been for not as much vibrato, but you know, as Peter said, we still add a little bit, especially on longer notes and things like that. Tracy, do you want to talk about? Yeah, in terms of in terms of the voice, we we know that vibrato was used. Uh, again, it's it's considered more of an ornament, but we know it was there because on uh, on on Baroque organs, there's a voice stop. So you would pull it out, and the way the voice stop was constructed was it was two pipes that were very close in in pitch, but they were just a little bit off, and this would create a noticeable wobble. So. And that was, again, if it was called the voice stop, apparently it was imitating the human voice. So that's how we know that, again, vibrato was used. But uh, the general gist now is that um, it was not used continuously. It was used to warm sound. I think one of the things that happened when early music started to be um, recorded and, and played again prominently in the 70s was that England is one of the few countries which has had a long time tradition of, of countertenors. Uh, they've had that tradition going on ever since they've started choral singing, which has not been as, as prevalent in other countries. And the English countertenor generally sings with a straighter, uh, uh, pure sound. Um, and so when people started doing this music again, they just assumed, okay, that's a male singing high, and they're sometimes doing early repertoire, that's what it should sound like. Uh, but I think research has, has borne out that, um, that certainly vibrato was present. Um, it just wouldn't be the dark, heavy vibrato we're used to hearing up today, which is actually an acoustical development um, as theaters got bigger and they weren't singing in resonant palaces with lots of uh, stone walls and stone floors. The way to make sound carry is to add vibrato. It, it's part of something that helps it project. You can sing louder and not have it sound as grating to the ears if you add some, some shimmer. Um, and this is a whole other topic, but there are some people who argue that the way we tune things nowadays makes everything sound slightly out of tune. We tuned things a bit differently back um, in Baroque periods and, and Renaissance periods. And some people argue that using vibrato helps, uh, helps make things sound more in tune. <coughs> Do we have any other questions? Yes? Who, who makes your instruments? How do, you, how do you acquire these now? How many people are making them? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a journey, that's for sure. Uh, when you first decide you want to get into it, you have to find someone that has one, and you can imagine that there's not too many student instruments of this variety, but they do exist. And um, I, I sort of ended up um, buying instruments from Italy, but it was very hard to get them worked on by someone in Italy who didn't really want to work on it. So I found a guy in Princeton, New Jersey, who uh, had been building in Europe for a long time. And uh, he, he, he sends me emails and he asks me, are you keeping it in its case? Are you keeping it in two? Are you playing it? Because if you're not playing it, I don't want it back. <laughs> He's crazy about them, you know? Um, so yeah, Princeton, New Jersey. I, I'm so happy with them. Um, my instrument was made in um, near Burlington, Vermont. And um, it was made in the early 80s. 
um, by an extremely renowned maker that's no longer making, he decided the business was not lucrative enough. You can imagine how many people are buying these instruments. This is a very high level instrument, not a lot of people are buying them. Anyway, we're, we're hoping when he retires, he starts making them again. But um, <laughs> I was lucky and kind of fell upon this instrument and bought it. I, I would say for, in my world, in the, in the bio world, um, there are two or three really good makers in the US that you know are making professional quality instruments. There's also recently been um, people making instruments in China because it's cheaper there. Um, they're they're very very good. Um, you know, high level student instruments. You know, I, I have I have another one because I can't afford um, too many really nice instruments. But I have a Chinese vial at home. Um, Actually, my violin is uh, was made in China. Actually, and it's actually um, there are a number of makers making broke instruments, or some in North America. And this goes for modern instruments as well. But the quality of craftsmanship across the seas now has actually risen to a very high level. So there are instruments that are being made now that are quite good. And so my my uh, broke violin is a Strat model that was uh, manufactured actually in coordination with a company out in uh, California. Um, but my viola was actually uh, made um, by the student of the gentleman who made Rachel's file. <laughs> so uh, he's uh, many years ago a student. He's a very known maker now for violins um, and violas, and his broke violas are are quite stunning. Actually, they're really beautiful instruments. So that's the instrument I have the pleasure of playing for you today, and. Um, there are also, you will see many instruments that there are still existing models of these old instruments, but they are fantastically expensive, as you probably have a sense of them. There are Stradivariuses and Guarnieris. This is a Andrea Guarnieri model, so fairly early, um, uh, six, uh, 16th century. No, 17th. I can't think straight. <laughs> it's early. Anyways, yes, yeah, of course, it has to be. And um, so it's, it's a very early model. Uh, and uh, what year is your instrument? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 19. <laughs> well, there's another. Oh, yes. Concept of solo of solo singing with a with with basso continuo um, on a um, high a, a piece of high literature um, uh, learned text that that is a new concept yes the the and 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 the reason I guess the, the important thing about monody was it was it was able to to move the emotions it was able to express emotions in a way that solo singing before that wasn't solo singing before this time was you know, often singing a ballad or um, telling a story or singing a, a fun tune, but it wasn't it wasn't these overwrought dramatic texts um, that were inspired from Greek tragedy the same way. So yeah, it, it was new. And Caccini invented it. <laughs> According to him, really. Uh, 
Perry also gave a run for his money. He also claimed to invent it, but um, it, it came from this general, this general time period. Well, we'd like to invite you up to come look at our instruments if you'd like to. And of course, we'd love to encourage you once more to come to our concert tonight. It's at 8 p.m. in the Eisenhower Chapel. It's practice. And uh, thanks again.